In his play As You Like It, William Shakespeare wrote this about love. If thou rememberest not the slightest folly that ever did make thee run into, thou hast not loved. It was as true then as it is now. We do the strangest and oddest things in the pursuit of love. I don't think that I only speak for myself when I admit that some of my choices were led more by the impulsivity of my heart rather than the reasoning of my mind. I have enough embarrassing anecdotes to prove that fact. Those experiences have colored the way I consider other people's choices in their own pursuit of love, especially when those choices are different from what many might consider traditional or socially acceptable. When Isadora Kosofsky began documenting the romantic relationship of three seniors, it was propelled by more than just the curiosity of a senior love triangle. It was an exploration of what it means to belong, to be needed, and to be loved at any age. This personal project demonstrates that the need and desire for love does not fade with time. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. I got turned on to your work a while back, and then um, when I went to... Photoville? Yeah, Photoville, Photoville. And it popped into my head again. Oh, well, yeah. God, I, why haven't I gotten in touch with it? Because I remember when I first saw the work, I, I forget in what magazine article I saw it or something, maybe online, I immediately just gravitated to it. I thought it was just wonderful. So I'm glad we finally got mm -hmm. around to having a chance to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. In researching, I was just amazed at how early you got started in terms of not just photography, but you knew so early, even in your teens, that you wanted to do documentary photography. How did you come to an understanding of what, of what that was, and why was it something that you were so sure you wanted to do? Well, I knew from an early age that I wanted to be a journalist. I saw injustice and suffering in my own family, and I felt very out of control as a result of what I was witnessing. And I think from that early understanding of the human condition, I took that subjective knowledge and that was part of what ignited me to want to make a difference in the world, which I think is a common thread with many photojournalists that most of us, or one would hope, have this desire to be part of collective healing through story and our work. So looking at my family and my early experiences, I felt that I could not repair what I was seeing in my immediate circle. And I think through that sensitivity, I felt that I wanted to then go out into the world and connect and have safe intimacy and learn from others as I have in my trajectory over the last 13 years and really use the camera as this vehicle for easing the loneliness of the people that I shadow. Mm -hmm. But also I think in turn at that age, it was easing my own sense of solitude as well, inevitably, because I've always taken an immersive approach being embedded with people from the age of 13, 14 onwards felt organic to me because I learned through my first project of documenting people in hospice care that consistency, commitment, 
and patience is so deeply important to the documentary storytelling process. And as someone that not only works with senior citizens, but very often works with people who've experienced trauma, consistency is so incredibly important when you work with people who whose trust has been compromised and broken and betrayed in their lives. And the relationship between myself as a documentarian and the people that I document is its own relationship. Mm-hmm. And working as a documentarian at an early age in the hospice care context and in nursing homes, in retirement communities, I didn't necessarily learn how to be a photographer. I learned what I feel is really the essential values and structure of what it means to be a storyteller and a storyteller working from an empathetic place, which is how to sit with people. Right. So I would say that early education of sitting with people in hospice care, in nursing homes, because my initial body of work was, I believe, rooted in, I don't think consciously at that age, but in a love and connection to my grandmother who had passed away when I was 13. So I gravitated towards older people, but I think there it was twofold. You know, I, I did have this reverence for my grandmother. She was my best friend growing up and she was my only ally. I felt she was a safe person to go to a confidant, but I think also I felt old. I felt detached from my peers and I think pain ages you regardless of how old you are. And so does, so does remoteness. And I felt incredibly separate through various experiences I had in my life as a young girl up until that point. So sitting with people at that age felt like the seeds to be the documentarian that I've had to be up until this point, and now I'm 26. Learning how to sit with people has been the most profound education because there's no classroom, there's no book, there's no formula about how to hold space for people in their pain, in their joy, in their uncertainty, in their grief. I mean, I think ultimately as documentary photographers, we're constantly contending with grief. Yeah. It's really interesting. I saw your TED talk and you talked about your invisibility with your with your peers and, and with your and your family and how you felt as you just described, uh, a connectedness with the people that you chose as your your subjects. And Oftentimes, we come into our identity, especially when we're young, and it's shaped by the relationships that we have with other people. You know, when you're young kids and you're in a group, everyone's there's, there's this hierarchy. You know, that's the cool person. This is the hanger on. This is the best buddy. You know, and we sort of are defined by that dynamic. But here you're coming in as sort of an outsider, and you're talking about the relationship that you're evoking with people. How how did you come to kind of understand your relational role with your subjects in terms of your own sense of who you were? You know, this, this, I'm kind of meandering with my question, but I think I think it's an important one to consider, especially when you're coming from that kind of personal experience where your identity has sort of been elusive for you in, in terms of how it works within a group, but you're placing yourself within another group and then you're kind of allowed to 
sort of define it to yourself to a degree. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think it does make sense. And I think the way that I've approached, you know, if we're particularly talking about my work with senior citizens and seeing the the work senior love triangle that I did about three senior citizens in a romantic conflict, I always approached documenting seniors as my peers, actually. So working with seniors, and this comes as a surprise to many people. Oftentimes writers ask me, well, weren't, for example, Jeannie, Will, and Adina protective of you? And I said, well, no, they weren't. They never referred to me as a granddaughter. I certainly didn't feel that way. And that was very much the case across the board with the many elderly individuals that I've shadowed. I attempted to approach them as a peer, and they then in turn approached me as such. And that so much comes from this nonverbal communication that emerges between myself and the people that I document. There is a language to empathy that goes beyond words. And that ineffable, familiar, unfamiliar feeling that I get when I first see the person that I know I'm going to document for years as a long-form documentarian, that initial intuition is at once mysterious but precise. Because I know within a few minutes that I'm going to shadow that person for years. They show me, through our relationship, answers to fundamental questions that I've held And perhaps sometimes leave certain questions unanswered because perhaps some of my questions about love and intimacy and being in relationship with others and yourself have more than one answer. But oftentimes the people that I shadow, I know, I wouldn't even say often, I would say every time I document someone for a long period of time, I know immediately that I'm going to know them indefinitely. And the way that I work is that I start a relationship with someone. Most of the time, I'm not photographing immediately, but I'm just getting to know them. And it's through that relationship and the safety that comes from their continual exposure to me and my presence continually in that space That's the point where they start to forget that you're there. And that actually does happen to people who are not documentary photographers. That feels absurd and unnatural, but it's very real. You know, I have gone to people that I've shadowed for years and shown them photography taken over a period of time. And they'll say, wow, I don't remember you taking that photo, you know, because they're so immersed in the moment of their lives, their space. That was very much the case with Jeannie, Will, and Adina. They really weren't concerned with my photography, actually. They were so consumed with their dynamic, with their daily lives, with conflicts that were coming up amongst them, that the photography was, you know, a part of who I was, but it wasn't a point of distraction for them. And that very much comes from an immense time investment in just being with the people that you're shadowing. I truly believe that there's no such thing as wasting time as a documentarian because life is your studio. And even if you don't take a photo on a particular day, that doesn't mean that you lacked purpose because the process of documenting someone 
it inevitably nourishes your soul, right? And all the distractions of being a young photographer that I often hear about now that I teach, you know, these concerns around publication and acknowledgement and accolade. As someone that spent so many years with older people, I can tell you that those people don't care about those things when they're 80 and sitting in a retirement home. And that has been enlightening for me to reflect on, even in this time of of isolation for many of us, which is what will we carry with us in our souls when we reach a point where we have to just sit with ourselves, which many of us just try to avoid throughout our lives. I mean, we're constantly bombarded with distraction and escape, and rightfully so. Many of us don't want to sit with ourselves. It's so uncomfortable. And I think that that discomfort inevitably comes up in the relationship with the people that I shadow because you have to teach yourself and acclimate yourself to being uncomfortable. And I think that my initial experiences in institutions documenting people generations behind me uh, has taught me that discomfort is obviously an inevitable part of growth. And the discomfort that I felt initially working in institutions has grown into, hopefully, an ability to just leave room for the grace of the people that I shadow, for them to be able to just be who they are in front of me, uninhibited uh, by my presence. How did you meet the, the three that you ended up uh, focusing on for those, those years and is the subject of your, of your book? So when I was a freshman in high school, I was in a French cafe. I'm half French. And I went to a French cafe in the morning because at that point, I wasn't going to school consistently. And there were truancy officers around LA County that would check in and see whether certain students were going to class. And oftentimes, students would loiter in areas that were obvious to law enforcement. But I went to a French cafe owned by an acquaintance of my mother who was French. And I would sit in that cafe with my camera at that point. I think at this point it was about maybe six months or a year that I had started photography. You know, I picked up a camera when I was 13 and I knew it's what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I remember holding the camera in my hands and saying, this is going to be the greatest love of my existence. And it still is. I mean, it was an immediate marriage and I held the camera and I just knew that it was going to be this portal to endless adventure and inquiry and challenge. So six months to a year later, I was sitting in this French cafe. I had already spent hours perusing books at Arundel, which was a an art-ish bookstore, photo bookstore on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles, which no longer exists. It's now a makeup store. So where I used to sit and peruse Kudelka and Eugene Smith is now where you can buy papaya face scrub, uh, unfortunately, for better or for worse. So I would sit there in the back of the bookstore for hours and I saw the work of Ed Cashy, of Jane Evelyn Atwood, her eight-year study of women in prison. You know, I, I saw the commitment and the sense of responsibility and duty 
in the works that I was absorbing. And I knew that's what I wanted to do, that I wanted to be a social documentary photographer. So from that self-taught education in the bookstores and online, extensively looking at photo essays, I realized that I needed to create work around a central theme or about a given community. And because I had always had a certain outsider subjectivity, I was definitely drawn to people in public spaces who were disenfranchised, not necessarily readily apparent, but an energy, uh, an energy of difference, uh, an energy of disconnect, a certain longing to be heard and understood. I could often feel that on others because I empathized with that desire to be seen and heard and understood and probably validated. So I was sitting in this cafe with an open heart and at that point, finally, a digital camera. I started off with film. And I was photographing some of the, the regulars at this cafe, one of which was Bianca. She was 82 at the time. I had taken her portrait one morning. She would eat there three times a day. She was a seamstress to a lot of actors and actresses. And she didn't want to cook in her studio apartment because she didn't want the clothing, particularly the sequins, to smell like food. So she would eat out three times a day. She was born in Chicago. She was neighbors to Al Capone. And she moved out to L.A. after pursuing a career of being a flamenco dancer. And she loved this French cafe. So she was reading her L.A. Times and she had these large black glasses, circular glasses. And I approached her and I asked her if I could take her portrait. A few weeks later, I was back at that cafe one morning again, doodling on the paper tablecloth. And she came towards me, Bianca, 82 at this point. She stood in between two tables. She didn't fully approach mine. And she said to me, honey, what do you want to do with your life? And I looked over at her. She's only five foot one. I glanced over. She had her hand on her chest. And I said, I, I want to be a documentary photographer. And she said, oh, honey, you'll never be lonely. Mm. Oh. And that was the beginning of a 13-year relationship that continues today with Bianca. Shortly after connecting with her there, she ended up in a retirement home. She was starting to have the beginnings of dementia. So she left her studio apartment, most of her belongings, and moved into this residence in East Hollywood, a converted hotel from the late 30s. Two really beautiful brick towers with a lot of history. So inevitably, I went to see her probably every Friday to document her life at this retirement home. And this started freshman year of high school. I was 14. So for three years, which continued thereafter, but for three years, I would go to her apartment on Friday evenings after school. And I would listen to Billie Holiday on tape with her. And she would wear a blue nightie and she would dance and she would drink champagne out of green champagne glasses and try to convince me to drink champagne with her. And I'd fall asleep. Uh, it makes me just so emotional because I have so much gratitude for what I'm describing. You know, so we would, I would sit on that white couch and I'd fall asleep. And, and the next morning we'd wake up and we'd go downstairs and we'd do aerobics in the chair. And, 
have lunch and then watch Jeopardy. And I, I was there, a part of, of the community. I was one of the only young people I saw over the course of those years participating. So three years into documenting her at that point, I had turned 17 and I was sitting with her in a dining area. She was eating turkey with gravy. I think it was a Thursday night. She was sitting next to a guy named Bill. And Bill was hitting on Bianca, but Bianca really wasn't interested in Bill. Bill said he was a film director, but we couldn't find his films online. She wasn't impressed. So as I turned my attention away from Bianca and Bill, I started to look around the room at at the various other residents. Bianca nudged at me and she said, that one over there, she's such a flirt. And I glanced over at the corner of the room and there was a beautiful woman with long white hair in a turtleneck. And she was leaning over a table talking to one of the male residents. And that was Jeannie. And that was my first introduction to Jeannie. And I looked at her interacting with this man and I felt that intuition that I feel about the people that I know that I'm going to know and shadow. But at that point, I didn't see her in the midst of the triangle or the trio or the relationship that I would then go on to document. There was something about what I have observed that resonated so deeply for me at that point in my life, which is she was auditioning for the role of special in men's lives. She so badly wanted to be named special. And that resonated so deeply for me. I interacted with her a bit in the hallway. She would greet me. She was always so giddy and appeared so joyful. And a few weeks passed. I was sitting in the parking lot. I was waiting for my boyfriend at the time, Evan, to pick me up in a Ford pickup truck. It was a Friday night. And I saw three people approach the gate. And it was Jeannie, Will, and Adina. Adina and William were holding hands and Jeannie was a few feet behind them. They buzzed at the front gate and Jeannie made her way to the front door of the facility. And then Adina and Will, hand in hand, made their way to the bus stop in the opposite direction. When I watched Jeannie walk up the side of the building to the front door, I felt longing and desire and loneliness in the way that she moved away from Jean, from Adina and William. And I felt this immediate connection to everything that I had just witnessed. And I knew just from observing them that there was some kind of romantic conflict going on. So I spent a few weeks observing them from afar. Uh, they would gather in the dining room. Adina lived in another facility. What happened was William was living in a facility with Adina He was then asked to leave that facility because he was not permitted to reside with Adina in her apartment. So they evicted him, and then he looked for another place to reside, and that's when he moved into the retirement home where Jeannie lived. And on his first day, he met Jeannie. He already had a relationship with Adina for a number of years. Not wanting to break up with Adina, he continued to have a relationship with both women and then eventually introduced them to one another. What was the, uh, what was the response when they, when they discovered that they were sharing him? Well, Adina had more of an open 
ended view of what a relationship constitutes looks like. And Jeannie had a more traditional view of what or how a relationship is supposed to manifest and what needs, wants, and promises should be fulfilled. So initially, Jeannie was against the notion of sharing William. And it was over time that she started to warm up to the fact that Adina was going to be around, that William was refusing to detach himself from Adina. So that would create very often jealousy and discomfort and pain for Jeannie, which you can see throughout the photo essay, she grapples with questions of monogamy and the nature of love and is love compromised when it's shared or is it actually more expansive when it's spread throughout? She struggled with it initially. And Adina, I feel, initially did too, but she so often came off as aloof and I think didn't want to necessarily show that there was a kind of awkwardness occurring. And then I think through her poetic view of life, as she said to me one time when I asked her, what is this relationship? She said to me, there are many different kinds of love and we stay together and that's it. And I pushed her, as I describe in the essay in the book, to expand more on what she was describing And she wasn't willing to. She just wanted to leave it as that. And she passed away two years ago, now three years ago, never having fully described her thoughts to me. But she didn't have to. You know, she spoke in other ways. And ironically, she was a linguist. But she spoke so she spoke so little. She was proficient in gosh five or six languages. She had a master's degree in, in Russian linguistics from UCLA. So she was a lover of language and ex, and verbal expression and and the written word. But she didn't like to define things, which I think is so telling and and real really allows us to live in the kind of liberation and deliverance that I think the three of them yearned for, right? There was been such a propensity with this story reaching such a wide group of people that I never imagined would have happened when I started documenting them. I mean, I was initially photographing them because I resonated so deeply with the three of them and had my own questions at that point about the nature of relationship and monogamy and commitment and forever and always. And so much of so many of the conflicts that come up with traditional structures of, of connection. So I was working with them. I wouldn't necessarily say as a pastime, but basically, you know, just as this organic relationship and desire to know. And I didn't expect the relationship with them, the photography that came from that, from my time shadowing them to have such an impact on people the way that it has. And from the wide net that it, that it has reached, you know, there's been a need to define and a need to know. And speaking about this work so often, I, I'm asked certain questions that I really can't answer, you know, like, is it love? Was it love? What kind of a relationship was it? Well, I don't know. Just go on this walk with them as I did, right? 
I can't tell you. And I think not knowing makes people very uncomfortable, especially when you're looking at a relationship amongst three elderly people and living in a sociocultural environment. I think that's coming up even right now in, in the face of a global pandemic where we're seeing senior citizens, I wouldn't even say disenfranchised, but made to be dispensable, you know, and the, the lineage of that has, has, is so present long before a global pandemic. I mean, we do not often see older people being and acting like people. You know, we have this tendency to reduce them to a certain set of keywords, right? Yeah, and because they're relegated oftentimes to invisibility, people are surprised that they are still interested in relationships, romantic and they, you know, they want as much from their lives as when they were younger and, and us. But because we relegate them to the shadows, people are very surprised that they're not just sitting there. They have a basically a stereotype of someone sitting in a lounge chair all day watching television. And that, that's the extent of their, their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Being able to produce this show while being relegated to my house is a saving grace for me. While I have my normal work to occupy my time, it's being able to sit down with a guest during the week that livens up my day and keeps me from going a little stir-crazy. And I hope that listening to the show helps make your time at home easier as well. I can't thank you enough for being a listener and for the kind words many of you have sent me over the past few weeks. Along with your words, your financial contributions are helping us tremendously. Your regular donations reduce any anxiety I might have about beating the cost of production each month. So thanks to the many of you who continue to support the show. And if you haven't already, and you can, please consider contributing to our Patreon effort. By contributing just $5 a month, you're helping us to do so much that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise without you. Join us today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. One of the things that I like about your work, and I think it's resonated with me from the very beginning, and you kind of speak a lot about empathy, is the choices you make in terms of what you photograph. And a lot of, uh, I think many people, when they think of photojournalism and documentary photographer, they're often thinking about an event, an action, something very that plays out very dramatically in, in, in front of the lens. And your images do document a moment, but it's, it's founded on emotion. You reveal it in the gestures, the way someone looks at another person or doesn't look at another person. There are these very almost quiet, very subtle moments that play out and they're easy to overlook. But when you're telling the kind of story that you're telling, you being in tune with it allows you to make the images that are as strong as they are. And that doesn't come easy because that is that requires a certain level of trust in yourself in terms of you being able to recognize what that moment is, is speaking to. And so can you speak to that in terms of developing? Because you can develop your confidence in terms of how you use the camera, right? Shutter speed, focus, exposure, all that other stuff. But gaining confidence in terms of the moments that you recognize is something altogether different. 
And since you didn't have any sort of formal training, can you talk to me about how you developed that that visual confidence that has allowed you to so effectively produce this work? Mm, well, thank you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I see it as confidence. I love the use of that word. For me, it's I use my internal blueprint to guide me. I use my intuition. And visually, I think that I've absorbed a lot of work over the years that influences the way that I see. And that's cinema, that's painting, even literature, story. Fundamentally, I am desperately in love with story. And I believe that story is a revolutionary medium and it's a medium of revolution. I think when Walter Benjamin particularly talked about photography, the Marxist philosopher, when he spoke of photography as a means of revolution, that was so true. You know, he was speaking about it from the sense that we could continually reproduce it for the proletariat, meaning anybody can access it. You know, where painting and and sculpture and even forms of cinema can feel alienating for many who, who don't necessarily have the palette for it. Um, with photography, particularly with photojournalism or documentary photography, it's, it bears a language that anybody can access. You know, teaching middle schoolers were able to have dense conversations about the nature of compassion and connection and relationship. And we can similarly have those conversations at a graduate level. And sometimes the middle school interactions are, are, are even more profound. So with photography, I have watched it continually transcend. And then within that for story, for me, interestingly, that my visual language comes so much from some of the philosophical notions that I've described to you. It's so emotionally rooted. It's not as if I have some kind of visual lexicon that I call on. It's very visceral. It comes from a place of being radically present. It comes from a place of radically lacking judgment, which I think is a key part of being a documentary photographer. I'm not there to hold a moral stance. Again, I'm not there to define. I can't tell you if the relationship amongst Jeannie, Will, and Adina was polyamory or ethical non-monogamy or some of these terms because they never described their relationship as such. They saw it as a relationship. And in turn, I then documented as it was a relationship. Mm-hmm. So I attempt to channel the expertise of the people that I shadow. They are the experts of their own lives. And, and they are the teachers and, and, and they are the ones leading you and curating their own story as I shadow them. So fundamentally, you know, my visual language comes from a deep appreciation for story and an understanding that when you share story with someone, it is a covenant. It is a sacred space. Uh, and I and I truly believe that documentary photography saved my life when I was thirteen. You know, I found a way to connect a means of hope, uh, a means for for healing in a world that felt so devastating, and I found ways to understand complicated humanity too. I think 
my visual language comes from an ability through my own life experiences and through these educations via shadowing the lives of others. I mean, I feel like every project that I've done, even these shorter assignments, I was just on an assignment a few weeks ago that focused on immigration, and I spent two weeks with a group of people. Those two weeks feel like five years. I mean, it's... I am a certain age. I feel in certain parts of myself so much older because I have had to absorb so much through my own life experiences, but also through shadowing people over the last 13 years. And what a privilege that is. Inevitably, again, you know, that sense of feeling incredibly blessed and incredibly grateful that I get to be with people that they leave the door unlocked for me. I went to visit someone I've shattered for eight years a few months ago and I knocked on her trailer door and she came rushing to the door with a towel on her head and a towel wrapped around her. She had just gone out of the shower and she said, well, what the hell? I was just in the shower. And I said, well, I'm sorry. You know, I, I didn't feel comfortable opening the door. And she said, but why I left it open for you? Yeah. Mm. I mean, wow, that's, that's, that's an incredible gift. And I think my visual confidence, as you described, really comes from a, a place of feeling incredibly grateful for the open doors that I've been provided with by the people I shadow. Your description of what your photography has been to you in your life makes it very clear to me why you are as persistent and dogged as you are to tell the stories. Because I was reading about the story that you did about the two brothers, both of which got into the, the penal system, and that you had to really work about a year before you they got comfortable enough with you being able to freely photograph them. I know a lot of people that would have given up after about you know three or four times and then would have worked on, gone on to something else. So when mm -hmm. I hear that... Just what you just told me and knowing that part of it, it's just like, okay, I don't get you completely, but I get you a good amount <laughs> mm. to understand how you, how your work manifests itself and why you are so uh, committed to doing uh, these over the long term. But I'm curious as to when you're working on the shorter assignments, like the one for, for two weeks, how, what are the things that you've learned from doing these longer these longer personal assignments that help you to be really effective when it comes to the assignments that only allow for a limited period of, of time. The skill set definitely transfers over now. And the skill set is that people need to like you to allow you to be in their private space. And being liked is, is not based on a superficial exchange. It's so much rooted in energy. And more recently with the shorter assignment that I did, I had to enter people's homes and hope that they would acclimate to me fairly quickly. And that did happen. And that was because of the years I believe that I've spent working on my spirit. You know, the people who you shadow, whether it's for a few weeks, and I'm actually still in touch with all of the people I just shadowed for the most recent assignment, but whether it's for a few weeks for an assignment or 10 years, people know when you're real and they know it quickly. You know, this notion that the photographer chooses, selects the subject, 
is so incredibly problematic. I mean, I think it comes from a colonizing white heteropatriarchal approach to storytelling that's not aligned with seeing story as a covenant, like I described, but is more rooted in, in taking versus giving, right? And being a listener, being a listener, I feel like listening is 90% of documentary photography and 10% is executing story. And I don't only mean listening like I'm sitting on your upholstered couch listening to you describe your life for a few hours. I mean, listening with all of your senses, paying attention, being like I described radically present. The people you're shadowing when you initially walk through that door, they're watching you as you watch them. And a young woman that I shadowed, um, I have been shadowing for quite some time. Her partner asked me, you know, how did this all come about? How did you connect with her? And I said, well, I saw her walk into the room and I just knew. And she said, yeah, I picked you too. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right. You know, it's, it is a reciprocal choice. Uh, The people that you shadow, they have agency, obviously. It is not that they are voiceless. You know, this conception around voicelessness is so painful for me to hear. They're not voiceless. We're there to help amplify. We're there to help in a nonverbal way, encourage that their story has value and it has worth and it has merit, but they have a voice and we're just there to act as shepherds. And I truly believe that what I'm doing as a documentarian is so small compared to the courage that they display. Everybody that I've shadowed, you know, I've been documenting a woman for two and a half years in New Mexico for a work that has yet to be published. It's still in progress where I'm looking at the impact of complex PTSD, which stems from sustained childhood abuse, how it affects young women and how it has affected this particular young woman's life, her development and her young adulthood. The courage that she has showed me and her willingness to allow me to be with her through her suffering, but also through her transformation, because growth is incredibly difficult for us photojournalists to shadow. Healing is very hard to visualize because it's nonlinear, it's highly psychological, and it doesn't necessarily manifest in obvious behavior. Delilah, this young woman that I've been shadowing, her courage to allow me to be there with her is like a life force. You know, she inspires me as many people that I've shadowed do in their complex humanity, you know, and in being with them, I am more in touch with my spirit, my hope, my power. Uh, They allow me to get in touch with the deepest parts of myself. And I'm so grateful. That's beautiful. You know, the, the point you just made about the difficulty in being able to create a visual narrative that demonstrates growth and, and change and evolution, at, at the heart of that challenge for the photographer is not so much the images they, they create, is in the editing process in terms of choosing which pictures you are going to pick to print uh, and to call and collect in order to tell a particular narrative, not the definitive narrative, because any selection of photographs would tell a completely different story. But nevertheless, as the photographer, your responsibility is to be able to to tell the story that you think is particularly important. 
Tell me about that particular challenge in terms of learning that necessary skill in terms of being able to look at that incredible body of work that you've accumulated and making those choices? That's a really good question. Well, I'm going to say specifically, and because we're focusing on Senior Love Triangle, the book, uh, the process of editing for a book is so different from the process of editing for an article. Article format has always been a challenge for me as a long-term documentarian. How do you fit a complicated narrative that is occurring over the course of years of somebody's existence in a format of maybe 2,000 words and 15 photos. It's, it's incredibly difficult. And how I've been able to adapt to that occasional heartache, or I would say pretty common heartache, that, you know, the story, the continuum of the story is an honored in article format is that I see it as an excerpt and I explain it as such to the people that I shadow as well, where this is an expert excerpt, this is an installation. And it's a particular challenge with the work that I've been doing more recently in the last few years around gendered violence, where it, it's, it's such an immense continuum. And like I described with this young woman, her transformation and her post-traumatic growth is so incredibly important showing a continuum um, in article format is so hard so I would say editing for an article is so very different than the process of editing for the book for senior love triangle the book the book for me was was so important to to make at this point in my experience because Jeannie will and Adina are no longer involved Adina and William have both passed away And I felt that the project needed a central home. You know, it had been published in these excerpts, but I felt that we needed to see the spectrum of their experience of, of one another. So I started editing for the book and I knew that there were areas that could not be exhausted in article format that needed to be expressed in the book. And I knew I wanted to include their dialogue, for example, because when I was shadowing them, I was writing almost in script format. And the, the project has now you know, been adapted into an independent narrative feature film. So it worked out well that I had all of this dialogue in my notes. And I also have now used it for the book where their conversations are interspersed, where you're basically almost assuming the subject, my subjectivity of being on this journey with them, of sitting in on their conversations in the diner or the donut shop or at the street corner or in the retirement home. So editing for the book was this constant interplay of text and photo. And also with editing for the book, I was able to finally fully give voice to the complex character that William was, right? Mm. By the end of the book, you know, it's revealed that there were allegations that he had physically hurt Adina and Jeannie. And I wanted and needed the component of domestic violence to be in the book that hadn't been fully discussed in article format as, you know, the articles are being published on an ongoing basis over the course of their involvement. But by the end of their relationship, these allegations had emerged. And I knew that that was a critical part of the book. And interestingly, that was very much aligned with my emotional experience 
working with the three of them where initially I was grappling with questions that I had described earlier around, is it a love story? Is it romance? Is it relationship? Is it connection? Is it companionship? And then finally concluding that it it doesn't matter, you know, here is this story and let people internalize it the way that they want to and to live in that kind of free space. But then in my life, as a girl, as a woman, love was so often coupled with betrayal. And then now I was seeing that present itself in my photojournalism. And as I described at the book launch in LA, I was incredibly disappointed, you know, at the age of 20, 21, when William was now the aggressor in this story. I felt crushed. Uh, I felt so sad that Perhaps this idealism that I held had been punctured. And in the book, I discuss how William is so similar to my father and how during one of his rageful episodes towards Jeannie on Gramercy and Franklin and in East Hollywood, he was so rageful towards her in this distinct way that the way that my father was with my mother. And I remember calling my mom And telling her, I just watched this man that I'm shadowing, William, do exactly what dad used to do to us. I had this deja vu moment where suddenly William and my father were aligning. And then they also, ironically, were both raised in New Jersey. Both had such ties to World War II. They were both frozen in time, contending with trauma where, you know, the bombs went off in the 40s, but they're continuing in intimate partnerships today. So over the course of editing the work, I grappled with my own hindsight in the process of documenting them where I was able to finally look at components that were incredibly important of the story that couldn't really be looked at in article format. And that included, you know, William's mental health issues, the homelessness that he experienced, the relationship between Adina and Jeannie that finally emerged, you know, because at one point, Adina and Jeannie seemed to have a closer connection to each other than they ever had to William. And that kinship And that bond was very important for me to include in the edit for the book as well. And then fundamentally looking at how each of them ended up being with themselves. You know, they were each avoiding being with themselves. But by the end, William was left sitting in his apartment alone. And Jeannie was then moved to another facility and Adina moved out of state. So the utopia, the promised land of the three of them walking into the sunset, having a mansion in the Hollywood Hills, whatever William envisioned, it didn't end up happening. Actually, the voids that they were trying to avoid, they ended up having to sit with all of those feelings in the end. You know, there was running could only happen for so long. And another important part of the book was was to honor memory through text. You know, I couldn't pull obviously from history prior to their involvement because I didn't know them before they came together as a trio. So it was important through text and interplay of abstract photos to be able to have a nod to their personal histories. And particularly because I believe in the work that I've done. I'm just so often talking through my photos, through the stories that I that I 
decide to help tell, I really attempt to look at how it's it's nearly impossible to disentangle personal history from attraction. You know, the people that we're attracted to, they mirror, often they mirror wounds within us, but they can also mirror a, d- a desire for a better self. It's complicated, right? And the blueprints that we each hold, our personal attractions are very much tied to those. So it was important for me in creating a book that's about intimate attachment to be able to have certain nods to the personal histories of these three people. Considering these are documentary, photojournalism, editorial sort of work, did model releases play a part in, in, in any of this? Um, I have, I obtained while I was documenting them release forms that indicated, you know, the, that this was a project that would be published, which they were all three of them very aware of, but I requested, you know, their written permission. That's not always asked for by publications, but sometimes it is. It's, I feel just important to have that. And then it also gives you an opportunity to pause and talk to them about publication process and the reach of a, a given story. When the project was first published, or an excerpt of it in time in 2012, I went to William and I said to him, hey, Will, so project was published in time. And he went, well, you don't say. And that was it. That was it. I told Jeannie and Adina as well. They didn't seem pretty concerned about it. I mean, they had had these full lives. They were happy that the story was out there, but they were the least concerned with the photography. I would say they were amongst a group of people I've shadowed who were really more concerned with just having me around and liked having me around. When you've been dealing with younger, with the younger people like the the two brothers, because they're younger people, a little more concerned with how they're seen, how they're Mm -hmm. perceived, Mm -hmm. that play a factor in one, your ability to tell the story and two, being able to share the kind of imagery and narrative that you felt was appropriate? Um, I've actually been gifted with so much trust by people that it's very rare for that kind of concern, vanity, or fear of being misunderstood through my work to come up because of that fundamental relationship that allows for the work to be intimate they don't seem concerned about the way the work is going to look. I think that to the people that I shadow, I represent a compassionate world and they hope that the energy that I'm bringing forth will be similar to the the viewers. Um, But they trust me as a, as a, as a median um, in that process, which is, which I feel incredibly privileged that that is the case. So I've not contended with fears around how their stories will be interpreted because I assume that they trust that I've honored their experience. And I feel like I could probably write a book where every chapter starts with, I've never told anybody this, but dot, 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 because I've heard that continually you know, so much of this work is being able to carry the secrets of others, right? And work with them to be willing to share some of those secrets so that others may feel less alone. And how have you, how do you feel that this has helped sort of helped you to heal 
evolve, process your own, you know, personal trauma that you just, you know, you've described throughout our, our conversation. Mm, I think that particularly in the context of Jeannie, Will, and Adina's story, I've learned that particularly with my relationship with Adina and William, that relationships continue after death with people, you know, through honoring their legacy. And I feel that the book is hopefully a part of that because I spent a lot of time looking for William's grave after he passed away and felt like he was kind of lingering around me and 2018. And when I finally found his grave after looking for it for a few years, I felt closure. And it was such a comment on the nature of burial and the nature of being able to find a space to connect um, because I didn't necessarily feel as connected to him as I did with Jeannie and Adina, but have felt like our relationship, my relationship with William is even more intense now that he's not actually physically here. So I think that my work has transformed my understanding of mourning and of grief and grief being more than attached to obviously the physical loss of somebody. It's changed my understanding of death and it has most definitely changed my understanding of love because so much of what I'm describing is a love for other humans. I mean, how can you spend years with people and not love them? That love doesn't taint the truth. It actually emphasizes it. With the people that I've shadowed, and particularly with Jeannie and Will and Adina, I would say specifically in shadowing them, and going through the photography and the notes, the writing, and looking at their faces over and over for hours in Germany when the book was printed, and in working on this film that is based on the, the photo series that I worked on with Kelly Blatz, what I have been able to finally accept, not just know in my head, is that when you truly love someone, sometimes you have to say goodbye. As hard as it might be, as painful as it might be, sometimes the most loving and most courageous act is to let your own heart break and just let somebody leave you. Let somebody walk through the door and be gone which is something that I avoided so much in such a desperate and sad way, a lot of my early adulthood not wanting to be left. And my photography is this poetic exception to that, right? Because photography is permanent. These photos are never going to be erased. Nobody's going to take them back. And I think there's immense comfort for the people that I shadow with their own attachment challenges that the photography of their lives, it's always going to be there. Nobody is going to take it away and it's real and you don't doubt the reality being displayed. You can't be gaslit into saying or thinking that that didn't actually happen because it's a documentary photo. There it is. It's evidence. As one of the people I've shadowed said to me, the work is evidence. It can't be erased and it's never going to leave. And it's truly the eternal, the always and the forever that I've always wanted. But always and forever is unreasonable in human bonds, right? Particularly in the area of love and romance. So for me, Jeannie, Will, and Adina have showed me that the most courageous and loving act is sometimes saying goodbye. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Oh, wow. That's a wonderful question. A photographer that I admire is Diana Marcosian, who is happens to be a friend of mine. And I admire her work because she so courageously and so openly shares the most sacred parts of herself through her work. She documented her father, whom she was estranged from for a long period of time. She photographed him in his home and allowed that opportunity to photograph him to to begin healing a, a ruptured relationship. And she most recently did work, she is a documentary photographer, but she most recently did work in recreating her family history of, of coming to the United States from Russia and emigrating to Santa Barbara, California. And her forthcoming book is actually called Santa Barbara and it's being published through Aperture. I love so much of her work, her purely photojournalistic work from Chechnya earlier in her career. I probably have an affinity to, with her because of many reasons, but one of which is it's a, it's a unique subjectivity to be a young woman photojournalist, I would say. I mean, there are many. Gosh, I'm, I'm clearly not saying that we're, there's a minority of us, but there are hundreds, thousands worldwide. Uh, now with the Women Photograph Collective, we're able to reach out to one another. But starting so young, as, as she did as well, and as uh, Kitra Kahana and a few others, it's, it's a unique experience. And being able to connect with one another is so powerful because, you know, I have... I'm a woman photojournalist, but I also know what it's like to be a girl photojournalist, you know, and I like to feel and believe that it's still the 13 year old holding the camera that's running the show right now. And I hope she always will be. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks to Isadora for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting IsadoraKosofsky.com. And if you purchase her book, please consider using our Amazon affiliate link as it provides you another way to support the show. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Thanks to Steve GV from the U.S. for his five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you. While the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or making a one-time donation through PayPal. Thanks to Felix Zimmerman, Landruff E. Tint, and Elizabeth Converse for their recent contributions. I also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge about photography and making great photographs and provides you another way to support the show. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.